Welcome to the season finale of season two of Tiny Expeditions. Today we will journey into the world of agricultural biotechnology and learn how science is helping to feed and fuel the world. My name is Chris and today I'm going to be your storytelling guide. And I'm Dr. Sarah Sharman, your science advisor for this journey. Throughout the season, you have heard from many of Hudson Alpha's agricultural researchers. Today you'll hear from a brand new voice on the podcast, Hudson Alpha faculty investigator, Dr. Kankshita Swaminathan. I'm Kankshita Swaminathan. I'm a faculty investigator at Hudson Alpha, and uh, my interests are to understand what genes do and how they contribute to uh, phenotypes or traits of interest. The life sciences field is a very large field. The field of agricultural genomics is much smaller, much more specific. So we asked Dr. Swaminathan, how is it that you got interested in this very specific field? Before I came to Hudson Alpha, um, most of my work was primarily in um, genomics and transcriptomics. And the field of genomics in plants has moved leaps and bounds. And at this point, we have absolutely beautiful genomes, which is, you know, we, we've strung together and assembled um you know, Jeremy Schmutz's group, for example, is an expert at putting these genomes together. And um, once you have the genomes, which is basically just the DNA piece, you then use computational methods to figure out what all the genes are. But a lot of the genes we actually don't quite understand. We have no idea of what they do and how they're influencing or the importance the important function that they play in the plant's life. And so um, to me, to some extent, it was a frustration and an opportunity at the same time where we had these beautiful genomes. We were excited about all these genes going up and down. If you, for example, you know, gave a plant nitrogen or starved it of nitrogen, but we didn't really know what each of these things that go up and down do. And so I was looking for a way to go downstream of that effort to kind of try and understand gene function, to understand plant biology, and then hopefully then at the next step, you can influence plant breeding. Um, so I think as we try to build a more sustainable future, we need to actually understand the biology of plants so that we can actually build that sustainable future. And so that's where my interest came. Today we're talking with Dr. Swaminathan about some very specific applications of biotechnology in agricultural research. But first let's make sure we're all on the same page about what biotechnology actually is. Chris, when you think about biotechnology, what comes to mind? As a non-scientist, I think my image of biotechnology is more informed by science fiction and popular reading, or maybe even the Jetsons, you know, like images of spare body parts and organs being grown in a field or corn growing in rows on the surface of the moon. I'm assuming from the look on your face that those are probably not realistic applications, though. Well, I don't know if I was the only one here for the space episode, but corn on the moon might be possible soon. Extra body parts on plants? I'm not so sure. Why don't we turn this over to Dr. Swaminathan and hear what she thinks the definition of biotechnology is. 
Plant biotechnology is a set of tools at our disposal using which we can um, influence plant traits. Um, for example, you know, you can use um, agrobacteria mediated transformation of um, plant cells to add gene function or add in, um, add in, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 to edit a plant. You can also use a particle gun, uh, which is, you know, tiny little uh, gold particles, which you coat with DNA and you bombard uh, plant cells to get that DNA inside plants. And then, um, and those plants will now, you can select for things which have the DNA of interest. So these are all tools which are used in plant biotechnology. These can get more sophisticated if you are into plant engineering, where you actually want to engineer a whole pathway. You can use these tools to help you engineer a whole pathway and ultimately, you know, adapt or uh, manipulate plants to manifest a trait of interest. So we use all the tools available to try and understand how genes influence um, phenotypes or traits of interest. And I'm going to, for an example, um, talk about a plant that has many branches versus a plant that doesn't have very many branches. And you're trying to understand what genes actually contribute to the branching. You can then create a cross uh, between the two different types and then look at the progeny and then the progeny of those progeny. And these are called, you know, the F1 is the first generation and the F2 is the second generation. By the time you get to the F2, you have scrambled up those genomes a little bit. And so the trait, which is the branching, is going to vary in the different progeny that you're looking at. And so you can score this. And once you've got scores for it, if you've got genomic information, which tells you all the genetic variation between each of these lines, you can then correlate the two things and figure out which parts of the genome actually are tied with that trait of interest, which is branching in this case. The example that Dr. Swaminathan just gave us is a theoretical example. Later in the day, though, we're able to visit her lab and growth rooms to see real-world applications of this process. So come along with us. Let's go into the lab and the growth rooms. So this is Ren. Uh, she is an undergraduate intern in the lab. And this is Pradeep, who's a postdoc in the lab. So what Ren and Pradeep are working on is a genetics experiment where they are looking at phenotypes of interest in a cross between two Miscanthus species. Miscanthus is a type of grass that you might have seen in ornamental landscaping. Certain varieties of it can grow actually taller than a human. Dr. Swaminathan's group is studying Miscanthus for its potential as bioenergy. What are we looking at here? These are Miscanthus stalks that are from two different sample areas. Some of them are from Mississippi State University and some of them are from the field at Alabama A&M. Uh, some of these are from this year and some of them are from last year, but the ones that we're looking at this year are crosses between a two different species of Miscanthus that have different traits. 
and so the crossbreed, we're examining the traits of the offspring to see which parent they represent, and then that will be compared with sequencing data to see how things are stacking up and why they're happening that way. So we're looking at height, we're looking at diameter, we're looking at the branching trait, which is only seen in one of the parent species, and we're also examining uh, traits of the flowers. As you just heard, Ren is an intern from a local university. You may have picked up from our previous episodes that teaching the next generation of scientists is extremely important to our faculty and researchers. Ren actually started working in the lab as a high school student, and she's now preparing for graduate school. Not every experiment starts in the field with plants. Some of them start with a gene of interest and work back to figure out the function. We have an experiment in the lab right now, which is uh, we've grown sorghum in different levels of nitrogen, and we've looked at the genes that go up and down depending on uh, how much nitrogen the plant is perceiving. Nitrogen is something that is is important for all plants. And in general, even the plants that don't need a whole lot of nitrogen to thrive, if you give it nitrogen, you will see a boost in biomass and you'll see a boost in um, yield. To determine whether the identified genes actually play an important role in the nitrogen response of the plant, the researchers use another biotechnology tool. So what we do is we overexpress a gene, for example, which is to put the coding region or the, the protein coding region of the gene under a strong promoter so that its gene function is always on. And in parallel, we also try and knock out the gene function. And we use tools like gene editing to do that. And so the idea is if you create mutations in the gene, you are going to disrupt the protein and disrupt gene function. In combination, right, when you overexpress it and if you've knocked it down, you can now then grow these plants which under different nitrogen levels and then look again at the phenotypic variation and how the plant is responding to the availability of nitrogen. And by doing this repeatedly for multiple genes, you can actually begin to understand um, the influence of these genes on nitrogen response on the nitrogen response of the plant. We just heard how Dr. Swaminathan's lab is looking at genes involved in nitrogen response in sorghum. But let's take a step back and hear about what sorghum is and why it's an important plant to study. S- sorghum is a grass that is very closely related to corn and is also closely related to sugarcane, uh, both of which are well-known uh, crops, one for sugar and one for um, for corn, for its uh, starch and uh, feed purposes. Um, sorghum used to be grown a lot more here. Um, it is still a crop that is uh, grown in other parts of the world. It's used extensively as feed uh, for animals um, in many places and it can be used as a bioenergy plant. And so that versatility 
makes it an extremely interesting uh, interesting plant. And in all these cases, its yield is relatively high, right? So you can actually, you know, we talked about genes and plant breeding and um, plant biotechnology before, and it's pretty cool that you can actually have the same plant fit all these different industries. We're going to go into the growth rooms to see what sorghum looks like and will be your eyes and ears. In the meantime, though, just imagine a slightly shorter stalk of corn. Okay, so this is the growth chamber, correct? Yes. noisy in these chambers. What? So what are we looking at? Um, these are sorghum plants. Um, so some of them are transgenic sorghum. Uh, some of them are um, the wild type parent of that transgenic sorghum. Um, and so we plant them routinely. Uh, we also plant wild type to get uh, seeds and embryos because that's what we transform uh, for and that's what we do all our editing in and so that's what these are sort of plants wow it's it's hot <laughs> it is it's hot it's a summer's day there it's, it's always summer in the growth room always summer and so does it does the plant think that it's daylight all the time or do, is it set on a cycle it's set on a cycle it's set on a day night cycle um, and so that day night cycle can vary um, for most part because we grow a lot of different things in here it's on a about a 14 day um, light cycle so from an untrained eye it's very easy to see the corn connection or what it appears to be a corn connection. It is very easy to see. So I think if you didn't, if you didn't know sorghum existed, I suspect that if you walk into this room, you'd think it's corn. Let's play a little game of word association, Chris. Excellent. Love these. Let's do it. When I say corn, what do you think of? Corn. Uh, easy. Popcorn. And more specifically, cheddar popcorn. So if sorghum is like corn, that begs the question of. Can you pop sorghum like you pop corn? That would be a great use of biotechnology if you could do that, especially if you can give me cheddar pop sorghum. I'm in. A sorghum, uh, uh, mostly that you see here, are the sweet sorghum. Uh, and and uh, Africa and India uses the, the, the grain sorghum or the uh, one which is used for the human consumption. And like, like the, the corn, like the popcorn, we do pop the sorghum and make the tiny little white pop sorghums. So how is it in relationship to pop? Is it sweeter or is it about the same or what's the difference in it? Uh, once they are popped, um, I feel similar. Like Similar? Yeah, similar. Uh, maybe corn is more tastier. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because it is bred for that mainly, yeah. uh, but it's uh, a little bit tastier. But yes, it tastes Almost similar. Okay. So, I mean, I'm concerned that you may not be helping out any budding entrepreneurs that want to start selling 
pop sorghum here. Yeah, it's it's. it's I think the key good. thing that he said though is that you know you have corn that has been bred for popcorn, whereas the sorghum that he's talking about that they popped was just you know grain sorghum, probably bred for whatever reason. Yeah. That they put in a skillet and popped, right? Like right, so, nice. or a, yeah, a yeah, walk and popped it. Yeah, breeding pop sorghum. There's nothing stopping you from breeding <laughs> pop sorghum. You could try breeding it for popping. Yeah. <laughs> for me, honestly, the only context I've ever had from sorghum, I guess, growing up in the South, is the syrup. Yeah. You know, that's that's the only sure. thing I've ever known yeah. known it for. Yeah. Um, going to the pumpkin patch or whatever, and you get pick up a jar of sorghum syrup you know yeah. yeah and i think sorghum rum too from the syrup oh really yeah so where do we find this that sounds interesting <laughs> i th- i think uh <laughs> i think uh korea japan and china have uh sorghum drink soju is, is it yeah, from uh, korea soju is korea it's korea right is that made of sorghum it has rice and uh, sorghum. There, like there are sor- there yeah. are so there is sorghum alcohol in China for sure, but I don't know yeah. what, which one it is. Yeah. Uh, but Some here in the U.S., it, it, it was okay. used for rum. I'm pretty sure, but don't I don't you have to go do your homework on where the sorghum rum. <laughs> All right, we've just been given homework. All right. <laughs> like good students, we did our homework that Dr. Swaminathan assigned us, and we found out that she's right. There is indeed a whole market in the U.S. for sorghum rum, and not only that, but sorghum whiskey. If biotechnology can give us pop sorghum and sorghum rum, I think biotechnology is leading us in a pretty good direction. These were just a few of the examples of how biotechnology is helping to feed and fuel our world. As our population continues to grow and the climate changes, people will depend on biotechnology to create viable ways to produce the food we grow, the materials we use, and the fuel that helps transport us. Thank you for joining us for this season of Tiny Expeditions. We hope that you learned a lot about how genomics and biotechnology are benefiting the plant and agricultural sciences. We've been to college, trekked through a peanut field, and dreamed about going to space. Through all of our journeys, we gained a deeper appreciation for the work that is going on in labs across the world and even in space. Labs that are dedicated to improving and protecting our planet, lives, and livelihoods. From creating more sustainable crops to making sure our chocolate and beer stashes stay well stocked, science has got us covered. Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research alongside companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If you find this podcast helpful, do us a favor and leave us a review wherever you're listening to this, and then... Tell somebody that you listen to this interesting little story about genetics. Knowledge is better when you share it. Thank you so much for joining us.